0: so much for listening to Pushing Praxis, Dialogues for Transforming Teaching. This is a podcast with Celeste and Naina, where we talk with educators, organizers, students, parents, and all stakeholders in the education of our young people. We're
1: here to push ourselves to take theories and put them into practice in our classrooms, even and especially
0: when it gets messy. Also, we're full-time educators, not professional podcasters. We're recording these conversations during the socially distanced pandemic, often on weeknights and from our respective homes. So expect background noise and fatigue and real unpolished human complexities showing up in these conversations.
1: We're here to transform ourselves and our listeners through dialogues. So come along for the ride with us. Tiffany Childress-Price and Dr. Mindy Chapel discussed their learning around using youth participatory science in their classrooms for the past five years. What role does history play when students dig into how heavy metals such as lead impacts communities in Chicago? How do we center students' lived experiences while making sure they get access to knowledge and analysis that's withheld from them? Even if you're not a science teacher, this episode is for you if you want to learn about the process of student-driven inquiry and investigation to humanize young people and build their skills and power for the long haul.
0: Welcome, everyone. We are so uh, excited to have this amazing group with us tonight um, to have a conversation about uh, the way you educate and what that looks like. And to start off, it would be great if um, each of our guests tonight could introduce themselves and you can introduce yourself in the way that you want our listeners to know you. Um, and sometimes that looks like who you are as an educator, who you are as a learner, um, and also who you are as a human being. But you can <laughs> introduce yourself as you see fit. Maybe Dr. Chapel, you want to go first? Sure. I don't mind.
2: I go. Hi everyone. my name is Dr. Mindy J. Chapel. Um, my students refer to me as Coach Chap Chap or you know Dr. Chapel. My friends refer to me as Mindy. and I am born and raised from East Boogie ooh, East St. Louis and I came to Chicago for uh, undergrad, stayed for grad school and stayed for uh, my doctorate. I think something that's important to me that I carry into my teaching is, you know, I'm a black female woman and scientist, and then that carries with me in every facet of my teaching and how I interact with
0: all of my students. Thank you so much. Um, Tiffany, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, everyone.
3: I'm Tiffany Childress Price. Uh, I am a West Sider from the from Detroit, the West side of Detroit. That's where I was born. Um, and lived kind of between a few cities growing up. I lived in Southern Southern California in Orange County, spent my teen years in Cincinnati, Um, and then I came to Chicago after graduating from Ohio State. Um, I live in the Laundale, the greater Laundale community, right on the border between La Villita or Little Village in North Laundale. I have been here for a very long time, so this is home now Um, I live with my husband Bobby who was from Lawndale we're raising two boys Um, they're seven and eight I never saw myself as a teacher in fact I have like really really vivid memories of walking um, past like on Ohio State's campus walking past the school of engineering and the school of education and thinking I could do anything except for those two fields I never want to be a teacher and I never would be an engineer. (laughs) I mean, and you know, the rest is history, right? Like just (laughs) the humor in life. never say what you won't do. Um, I, when I came to Chicago, I was working actually at um, La Vita Community Church doing some after school um, support for students who were at Farragut um, and Cardenas Elementary. And then um, was a community organizer working on the Little Village Londo. Um, high school, so that history is a really um, beautiful and powerful one. Um, We're basically residents in Little Village and then later North Fondo worked together to um, build a new, organize and then build a new high school. So I was part of that design team and in that process as a community organizer, I started to um, just really grapple with the power of education and how it brought me and my mother out of poverty And so um, kind of like my why in education is that, you know, great schools, um, coordinating with community leaders can really um, impact students' lives and start breaking cycles of poverty. So uh, that's a really important um, kind of foundation for my philosophy of education. Um, So, yeah, I'll stop there. Thank you.
1: And uh thank you everybody for uh joining us today. And so we we just want to kind of get right into it and kind of get like some background about youth participatory science um and you know uh whoever wants to kind of share with us their thoughts about being a part of that program uh and 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 uh implementing it in their classrooms uh you can kind of start it start us off so
2: for me when i think about youth participatory science is that for a very long time i kind of felt like a silo teacher in that obviously i love and care about science for whatever reason because no one forced me um to go to school to get a degree in chemistry no one forced me right there were some um explicit choice in my decision to get a degree in chemistry as well as teach chemistry. And a lot of it is rooted in my love and, and natural curiosity and wanting to share that with students. But I realized very early on in my career that I was just not a fan of, um, focusing on content knowledge for the sake of content knowledge and student knowing all of these, or not even knowing pretending to teach students all of these concepts that research shows us that they don't really even retain by the time they get to college. For me, mm. I felt it more I felt that my role was more in line with helping students see themselves as capable, helping students see themselves as deserving and worthy to be there also developing those skills where they will be able to stand on their own, that they will be able to critical think and they will be able to analyze the world. Right. And in teaching them and, you know, like using the, um, NGSS practices and having them do inquiry based real life was happening in a moment. So like Flint happened while I was Mm. having students develop a lab for them to investigate water and they were designing their experiment and just being who I am, there was no way I could just not address what was really real and happening around them. So that was kind of like my entry to youth participatory science because with my students, we were figuring it out in a moment, you know, I literally remember like wearing chucks and sweaters for like two weeks. Cause it was just like, you know, we're going to flip the way that we're doing this lesson so that we can really, um, explore a real life phenomenon that's helping around happening around us, that it's not me as the know all, right. You all are very capable of thinking things through and figuring things out. And so that was kind of like my entry to youth with history, science and, um, Being someone who, if I don't have a network in the place that I'm in, like I reach out to whoever I might have. So then that led to me like reaching out to uh Danny, uh, Professor Danny Morales Doyle at UIC, and like then we connected with Tiffany, and now you know, then reaching out with Nina to be able to be a part of the UP, the YPS project affectionately referred to as Poison Onion with you, I see where students are a very integral part of not only just the content learning that's happening in the classroom, but the collection of data, the data analysis and like all facets of the research and just seeing them like present their research and be have a sense of like pride and honor in what they're doing and carry that forward has been a phenomenal thing for me to see as students. And um, I have many more students who are going into science from this pathway than for me trying to force them into the pipeline by um, beating them over the
0: head with the importance of this content or with that content. Mm. Mm. I'm sorry, two clarification questions. You said NGSS. What does that stand for? Oh,
2: the, the Next Generation Science Standards. Because the thing that kind of irks me, as especially as a lead chemistry teacher, is that chemistry teachers often want to focus on the content, which the most transferable thing for chemistry students to college is those skills and those practices. Those are the guaranteed mm-hmm. things that they're going to need when they get in college. You know, um, if you can, you can hear many students and many new teachers talk about their first experience in a chemistry classroom where they were put in there and they had to get, they had a draw and had to open it and didn't know what the different things were or how to do it. Right. But yet when you're crunch for time and content, what are the first things people tend to, t- to, to cut out is those labs, Lab. which for me has always been mind boggling because those are the most trans- transferable
0: skills mm. and the other clarification question you said something about an onion, <laughs> <Something> <laughs> to an so, onion? i'm sorry um, i'm an outsider see,
2: no, onion. No, fine. so me tiffany and um nina are a part of a youth a youth participatory science group um that is sponsored by uh, Professor Danny Morales-Doyle at the U- at University of Illinois, Chicago. And the, I guess, affectionate name is Poison Onion, which really is really short. The Potawatomi people um, considered the land in Chicago to be rich, the soil for growing onions, but due to like industrial development and things like that, the soil became contaminated with heavy metals. And so kind of like the name that uh, we referred to in the beginning is like this ideal of now, of like a poison onion, because this soil that was so rich for growing, um, you know, different things is now contaminated. So
0: that's where that name comes from. Thank, Thank you, Dr. Chamble. am really that glad awesome. that you explained that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and we are on uh, Potawatomi land if we're recording this in yes. Chicago. So it's in, important to bring that in too. And it's uh, just awesome that that's also like a very conscious part of the project that you're doing. Um, for me, youth
3: participatory science pedagogy was growing in me before I even became a teacher because so, because it's all about, um, knowledge generation that is rooted in your community and in your lived experience. So before I became a teacher, I was a community organizer and actually that's how I met Dr. Morales Doyle. He was the lead science teacher, the the first teacher, uh, science teacher or chemistry teacher um, at Little Village Londo High School. So I wasn't even a teacher. I was an organizer. And then I started going to school to become a teacher. Um, and even as a science student myself, though I, I could jump through the hoops of what Dr. Chapels referring to, like the canon of science, right, like the stuff you memorize for exams, the, the content you have to pass you know, to get into certain courses, And do certain coursework in a Big Ten university. I could do that stuff proficiently, but it never really made sense, especially when I became a member um, of my community here in Lawndale. One of the issues that we um, are challenged by is the contamination of the soil um, in our environment with heavy metals because I live in what was formerly an industrial corridor. So, you know right now, looking out my window, I'm looking at the BNSF tracks. So basically, you know, paint with um, lead, uh, mercury, all the things that kind of are the, the contaminants involved in industrial development kind of came through this hub. And so um, another component of um, that has resulted in the contamination of our soils and stuff is just the, the dilapidation of buildings, right? So um in the 60s and 70s or you know during the great migration when black folks came up and if you know anything about history of um contract sales and stuff like that same thing happened in detroit i actually found my grandparents contracts their their sales contracts for the home that i grew up in in detroit um you know like black people were redlined and then you were charged you know at least four times more than what a white family would would pay for a home and so because of the cost and upkeep, a lot of the buildings started, um, you know, to go into disrepair. And so the lead based paint that was on the buildings would begin to crumble into the soil. And so, um, lead poisoning was a big issue in my neighborhood and as a community organizer, and I I was actually working as a interpreter at our local clinic as well. Um, you know, it was common for people to have experienced lead poison, like a really kind of common thing. So this idea of like science meaning something for how you live and science bringing solutions was like the impetus for my work. Again, even before I became a science teacher, it it did not make sense to me. Kind of like what Mindy is saying too. Like I could not not address these issues, right? Like when you live amongst the people, they're your neighbors, they're your friends, um, and science perhaps has some solutions for the harms that science has caused. It makes sense, that's logical to me as, a, as an educator, that we would figure that out together, that we would find the solutions for our own lives together. And so that's, so as I um, you know finished up my teacher training and came into um, teaching, actually the first school that I worked at allowed me to both do community organizing and science teaching. They gave me um, two course releases so that I could be a community organizer. So I was doing organizing wow, for that's nice. also being a science <laughs> teacher. Um, so that's kind of like how my, my science career actually birthed. I don't see myself teaching science any other way. So, you know, organically through our friendships, um, you know, that go back these at least 15 years, um, this project, this project and pedagogy has developed really organically and grassroots, you know, it's, it's not a performance of like, this is sexy. This is the new equity work that we're going to do, you know, like, because someone mm-hmm. else said it was cool, mm-hmm. we're all figuring out how to serve students, how to solve um, problems in our communities um, how to make science work for us because we've been working for science mm-hmm. for so long how do we flip
1: this and make science work for us now yeah you can you can say that again <laughs> yeah, so, how do we make okay, science well. work for us and so i, w- I wanted to um kind of get you know for our listeners like the nuts and kind of bolts of like uh, youth participatory science and kind of like if i was a teacher uh coming into this like what would um, be expected in terms of like being a part of it or trying to kind of teach in, in this manner like in my in my classroom? Like what would what would I be uh, having to face as, as a teacher or as a student um, and you know, learning it um, in this, in this particular way? so
3: I think there's a lot of variants. So like as I was saying before, when I became a teacher, I was teaching in the neighborhood that I live in. I don't anymore. And I will say that um, YPS feels at this time more challenging to me because uh, I'm in a new context, but for 13, 14 years, I taught where I live. And so I was very much in touch with the science-based problems and issues that, that my community on the West side faces. Now, like I work at a school where students come from every zip code. So whether you like, teach where you work or you are teaching in a school that pulls from every zip code the first the, the most rudimentary thing is know your students you don't go mm-hmm. in like with your your canon of science right like your perfectly aligned calendar of like scope and sequence and there's no room to ask you anything about your lived experience your life you go in day one where are you from who are your people what do you care about mm-hmm
2: and I think in line with that, um, because we are, whether we want to be or not, like we are um, conduits for passing passing along westernized knowledge. And so we walk into the room understanding that we, whether you understand it or not, we walk into the room privileging one way of knowing and typically that way of knowing um, aligns with our disciplinary discourse. And so I would say one of the, of the important things for teachers who Want to do youth participatory science um, projects specifically to the related to the one that like we are a part of with um, Professor Danny Morales Doyle at uh, UIC is to kind of in a sense let go of the grappling or the hold of content being important and how do I use real life events, kind of like a phenomenon to teach this content versus what content can help me and my students better understand and grapple and, and wrestle with these thing that is happening around us that there is no perfect answer or solution to. Um, And understanding that that can be an uncomfortable place, especially for science teachers, because we're, we're so motivated by this ideal of like fact-based evidence and so to let go of that in in hopes of um being in an exploration with your students that can be kind of messy um or imperfect instead of messy I think is one thing that's important and to understand the the need to foreground students uh background knowledge or to foreground students knowledge instead of just assessing their background knowledge one of the most um you know, thinking about my words here, (laughs) but one of the Mm -hmm. most aggravating things for me as a a teacher and especially a teacher who teach black and brown young people is that for people to always say, oh, you know, let's see what's interesting to the students. What do the students want to talk about? And then that's what I'll teach. I get that. But on the one hand, it's also neglectful because you neglect neglect to um, emphasize the fact that historically young people have been, denied access to certain information and certain historical mm. information right so I think it's um, very neglectful to then say I'm teaching them what's interesting to them or what's important to them because I grew up in East St Louis which is literally across the way from Saje which um, is a town that was developed to be, pretty much a corporation town. It was developed by the Monsanto company. It used to be called Monsanto. They later changed the name to uh, J. The whole reason that the town was even developed was so that this company could be there and um, pretty much escape, escape the regulations from government because back then you can form your own town and village and you came up with your own rules and regulations. So that was a way for them to like, you know, slide by the regulations from the government in terms of um, environmental hazards and things like that. And I grew up literally blocks from um, Sauge or Monsanto because I grew up on the uh, southern border of East St. Louis, which is literally right there connected. Learned nothing about this environmental hazard that so many people who live where I live in the South End. There's literally a huge lawsuit now and, you know, hundreds of people who live there. My mom passed away from cancer. My god sister's mom passed away from cancer. Right. And they're all part of a part of that lawsuit. And so it's like to say that I didn't care about learning or I didn't want to learn about those things um, would be a very inaccurate representation of what I wanted back then as a student. I had no knowledge these things were happening around me to even say that it was something that I would be interested in learning about, right? So uh, for me as a teacher, on the one hand, it's very important for me to mm. talk about things or um, present things to my students that they're interested in. But I also consider it a part of my responsibility specific for all students, but specifically for black and brown young people who are living in endemic um, places where these environmental factors are disproportionately impacting them. I think it's neglectful for me to just say, "Oh, I'm only going to I'm not, I'm going to teach only what students are interested in." I have to sometimes grapple with the idea that it's also my responsibility to present to them these things that are happening and help them understand how we can use science to kind of grapple with it and make some sense of it, knowing that we might find out some things that are trauma-inducing or some things that we don't know how to answer or some things that we cannot fix and we continue to grapple with, but I would, I can rest better with that versus saying, oh, we don't, I don't teach that stuff because my students, they don't care about it. It's not important to them.
1: And so can you, um, can um, any, anybody can speak to this. Can you tell us like about like how, when you're uh, doing this work and how it feels to like collaborate with the other teachers that are part of the project um, and students, Uh, how did that, How does that uh, work and how you feel about that um, when you're uh, doing the youth participatory science uh, events or collaborations um, with other schools?
2: I can say for me, one of the things that I enjoy the most, um, because let me just put this out there. (laughs) A lot of people who don't actively engage in this type of teaching, kind of refers to any time you want to bring in environmental justice, racism or social justice into science that is watered down science, that is easy, that it's, you know, getting away from the content and let me just say that I have never taught science in a more rigorous way than I do now being in engaging my students in youth participatory science projects. My students learn about mass spectroscopy. I didn't learn about mass spectroscopy until I was a junior in college, right? Um, My students, you know, learn about NMR and OES and, you know, um, plasma in terms of being able to, you know, heat up heavy metals and things like that. So my students learn very Advanced instrument instrumentation and procedures that you often don't cover in a science uh, chemistry classroom, and engaging in this type of work revolves in, involves so much more thought from the teacher, right? Because it's not about how do I, you know, uh, what phenomena can I use to teach this content. It's how does this content help me explain this real life thing, right? That's a very different shift and it requires intentional connections and working and threading by the teacher. And so what's more, the most meaningful thing for me is not having to do this work alone, being able to be a part of this network of like-minded teachers who, and when I say like-minded, I mean that we're all teaching from a similar place of love and um, hope and um, wanting the best for our students and our community and wanting to, Engage in a process where our students are coming to understand the world around them and look at science as a way to transform their world versus just be another innovating tool for maintaining America's place in the global market. So, being in a room where it happens with like minded people like that has been probably one of the most meaningful things for me um, while I'm engaging in youth participatory science. Being able to bounce an idea, you know, develop. you know, handouts because not having to do it alone makes makes it that much easier and then being able to reflect with someone about, you know, how this went and how that went. Um, so I think that's one of the best parts and I think a, ne- a necessary part for doing this type of work.
3: Yeah, it's dynamic and challenging. It's I love that Dr. Tappel mentions like rigor. I can't think of a, a, a different term, but we all work a lot. We It's a lot of um, intellectual commitment, right, and action. So I think the collective generates solutions naturally that um, are really contextualized to students' lives in ways that like cookbook, lab, cookbook labs, you know, like from a textbook that we've been teaching for 25 years just can't. You know, um, I, there's a, I have a cool story about one of my students, she graduated last year. Um, the knowledge retention and the application of the knowledge is so inspiring. I met her as a sophomore. Um, I was teaching at Michelle Clark. She's a sophomore student. Um, she took the knowledge that she learned in our class, um, knowledge about the different precipitates uh, from solubility chemistry, net ionic equations and learned about like how uh, water treatment works and the stuff that's added to, in water treatment facilities to kind of coat pipes like lead pipes learned about orthophosphate still is able to have you know a, a, a well-informed conversation about this but she took all the knowledge that we were discussing uh, about Flint in Chicago and actually helped to relocate her grandfather who was living in Flint. Um, So, like, that's real knowledge application, right? Like, I will take that. If that's watered-down chemistry, so be it. You know, but, like, she actually led her family, led the adults in her family toward a solution for her grandfather who, you know, was in a harmful situation in, in Flint, you know, removed from, you know, support and convinced her family, okay, this is a real crisis. We need to see what's going on with his pipes, see if he's being harmed by this and we need to find him a a more suitable place to live. And that all came out of her work in this collective. She sat on a panel with um, lead specialists, Mm. professors at Loyola and Northwestern. And to this day, she talks about how that experience shaped her identity as a student, how she felt smart, how she felt capable, uh, what it felt like to sit with people with PhDs in science um, and talk with students. You know, from the far southeast side of Washington University to the north side, um, just a really organic, beautiful collective across the city, you know, um, having students who represent the west side, the south side, the north side. Um, I know for me, it has helped me to feel less isolated because I've wanted to teach this way. Again, like my, um, you know, my previous experience, experiences in community have really shaped kind of my, my ethos in teaching. But like Dr. Chappell said, um, we we're always confronted with this idea that this is watered down science or it's not true to the canon of science or the silo of science. I mm. honestly can't see myself teaching an, another way. I learned a lot of science from my grandfather who had a third degree education and he was like one of the best scientists I had, I've ever met. But he, his science was not like affirmed or validated by the academy. And I think that we have a lot of knowledge in our communities that is that is not validated by the academy, and we need to shift that and start validating other forms of knowledge. Uh, I think what we'll find is what I found in my classrooms that students are excited to come to class. Like I've worked in high trauma schools, you know, high trauma neighborhoods where kids they want to come to chemistry, and um, something that Mindy talked about uh, living, growing up across from um, you know uh, the city of Monsanto, I think when we allow conflict in the classroom and we problematize issues, we grab Mm. students' attention. You know, like I remember when, uh, I shared with my students a CPS report on lead. I think it was like 2016, 2017. And my school was on that list and no one said Mm. anything to the students. Just one day, from one day to the next, our water fountains were wrapped up in plastic, duct taped, you know, like we didn't have access to certain places, no kind of communication went out to the students. That's wow. power hoarding, it's knowledge hoarding, it's adultism. Why should these teenagers not have access to information about the building that they spend eight, nine hours, 10 hours a day in? Um, so like it's inviting in students to know about their world. It's inviting in conflict and not being afraid of that conflict, like allowing it to be messy, not having, allowing yourself to not be the expert and have all the answers um, and letting students ask hard questions. Like when students can ask hard questions, I think the level of engagement completely changes.
2: Something that I wanted to share, just why Tiffany was saying it before I forget, is that um, this work to... It kind of shift. it extends the purpose for learning beyond like this science pipeline discourse. And it positions young people in a way that I've never seen happen in science before. It positions them to walk alongside the teacher as experts. It positions them as experts now versus the future you know, there are all these like anecdotal things that we say about young people. It's like, you are the future and you can do this. And you know, all of this, they can't participate in the electoral college, right? But all of those voting decisions impact them. So in a way, um, this cultivates a space for young people to be able to act now in the moment, for young people to be positioned as experts, to see themselves as experts, who can use what we say about science? Use science as evidence to support. No, I'm not going to say why we should build a drone that can drop bombs on a country and the drone not be intact. No, I'm not going to expel my scientific knowledge and expertise to focus on that. But I'm going to use my science knowledge and expert, and exp- my science knowledge and expertise to help my family in a very real way understand the hazard that is, you know. Um, what the hazard of this neighborhood and how it impact us and use this scientific evidence to help validate why we need to, you know, move to another area, right? So it it just teaches young people or give them a very different purpose for learning science outside of, I want to be a scientist or I want to be, I want to go to college and major in this and that, which is very limiting for many of our students who at the moment that we are teaching them chemistry, some of them don't see themselves in college and don't see themselves in very specific very specific disciplines in college. So to always focus on that is very limiting and in many ways it's unauthentic because most chemistry teachers haven't had a conversation with a with a uh, college scientist or a college professor to even Talk about vertical alignment or matriculation, and so what you think you know, students need to be successful in college is based off when you were in college, however many mm-hmm. years ago, right? And when you, if you actually talk to a college professor, like me and you know Nina, we talk to Professor uh, Donald Wink all the time. We we talk to um, Professor uh, Mike Sipe all the time,
1: <laughs> yes, right? <laughs>
2: and, and about what's important for students to carry with them, right? And so but that's not the case for all chemistry teachers. And, and so when we focus on this myth of pipeline discourse that is really just about maintaining America's place in the global market and innovation, we miss out on an opportunity for young people to really uptake science and see the harm of science, but also the benefit of science in a real way that's contextualized outside of innovation or you know all of that type of stuff.
3: And the decisions to create that curriculum were pretty arbitrarily created historically, right? Like who decides what knowledge students get, receive? Like it's a, it's a very particular select group of people who decide students should memorize the atomic number for the first 20 elements. And they should know what an atomic mass is and they should be able to do stoichiometry. Like of all the things that you can learn in the universe, right? Related to a chemistry course, who decided this body of knowledge and why can't we interrogate that? Right? Like Mm -hmm. some group of powerful, mostly white men decided this is what students should learn. And this is just what we all get passed down and we don't challenge it. We don't ask questions about it. I know for me, um, when I started realizing that medical doctors and dentists and and engineers actually didn't know this stuff anymore, I started wondering like, what's the utility of it? Like, what's the, what's Mm -hmm. the, for what? or for why, you know, as you meet professionals, they're like, oh, I just memorized that stuff for the MCAT, you know, or to Mm. get through organic chemistry. I don't use that. So then we have to start asking like knowledge for who and for what and why. And I think that's that's a critical component of YPS, interrogating Mm. and asking.
0: This is so inspiring. And I have a question as uh, for any listener out there who is not a science teacher, uh, just a reminder, I am a Spanish teacher. So a lot <laughs> of the language you all have used, them. like, cool, cool. I don't remember any of these words because <laughs> I, I don't remember them because I didn't have a YPS class. And, and as someone who is, uh, okay, so I'm a Spanish teacher, um, and I'm thinking about listeners who are not science teachers, um, who are like inspired by what you all are saying, um, and who want to know how to implement this. And so I'm thinking about what this looks like on like a daily practical basis. And what, what, what I'm imagining is <laughs> something like, um, you know, uh, like you have... Uh, uh, it, that you have a question that you want students to, to investigate or a topic that you want students to have questions about. And maybe there's a period of like question generation. And then there's a period of like designing your um your your research strategy and your experiments. And then like, it's really student driven. And is this like more, or am I getting it or am I projecting? Like, what, what does it look like on a daily basis? And I'm trying to think about it in a way that like, I can I can then take that and and try to use that framework in a different content area.
1: Yeah, I would say for me, since you know I'm 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 interviewing, but I'm also a, a, a youth participatory science teacher as of this uh, summer. And I would say one of the key things that um, I I'm really fascinated about about youth participatory science is the problem posing. Uh, so over over the summer. Um, I got to kind of bring my idea about the Environmental Racism Unit into, um, you know, trying to get it into that level of youth participatory science. And so what I found is that um, history is like really a huge part of this work, Mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. Um, The history of Chicago, like if you're in Chicago or wherever you are trying to investigate uh, with your students, as a teacher, me personally, I, I learned a lot of historical things that I could add to um, my uh, environmental racism unit. Because again, I was like Dr. Chapel, looking at Flint more. And um, then when General Iron happened, I switched, you know, edit that on, and then a Little Village Implosion. I added that on. But what I did begin to see in the summer, when I was creating my problem posing letter that I'm going to use this year with my students, is the 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 connectiveness of all of this environmental racism across the city, from you know the southeast side uh, to the southwest side, and how you know I looked up inf- information about the Your Gardens and saw that, you know, the Ogil Gardens was kind of like the toxic uh donut. Uh and they kinda set the premise for the pushback on General Iron. But then also to find, you know, validation in my um uh, family, my mother and my father will often talk about us living in the all Girl gardens. And the pollution that we were impacted by and they always talked about the fact that we had to evacuate you know and when we mm-hmm. were you know because it was a plume cloud over the gardens and so to f- to dig deep this summer and actually find images of a woman holding her hand over her face because she was in the Ogil Gardens in 1974 when the plume cloud came over the gardens from the factories and then also putting that next to the little village image when they imploded the a power plant it was just so powerful for me to see that and i can't wait to like share that with my students and i'm hoping that that'll like help them see the connectedness of all of this environmental racism that's happening in certain parts of chicago not all parts of chicago and so i feel like um you know, it's not just science, right? It's it's history too, right? So it's Chicago history or any history that you're kind of basing the lesson around in um, the location and, and what's been there before, right? So now you might see some nice building there, but what was there before that? And so I think that that's really something that, you know, um, youth participatory science had me learning even more and kind of uh, verifying my parents' stories, about growing up in the all girl gardens. And so I think that that's something that I can't wait to share with my students. Then, to, hopefully, it will spur them to kind of think about the communities that they live in and want to kind of share about that. And so, um, that I, I had to say that because that's probably the most powerful moment of the summer for me to like do that digging and finding that information. So I was pretty excited about that. And of course, talking to Dr. Chaplin, Tiffany, too, <laughs> and the other teachers. <laughs> It was really exciting um, to like get the ideas to transform my way of teaching science um, because I am a 26 year veteran science teacher. So I was trying to like transform my way of teaching science and authentically giving it to students. And so I feel like that's that's something that's really, you know, it's hard. It's hard to not go back to the traditional science way of teaching that I know, and and just engaging people like Dr. Chapel and Tiffany, it helps me to keep going with it mm-hmm. and, and not stray away from it and and interrogate like have my students, you know, also interrogate science. And uh sorry, uh, I had to be a youth participatory science teacher for a second, so sorry about that.
3: Uh-huh. <laughs> no, that's awesome. It's, yeah, curious, you you wear many hats. Yeah. Did on the historicity. Like that's I mean, it's been a big takeaway from the whole group. Actually, Dr. Chapel and I are working with two brilliant scholars. To kind of like document that right now but like history is a big piece but um celeste so i'm thinking about like other content areas and i think about a model that i have learned from dr shireen musagi oh, sorry for Shireen. i'm sorry for messing up your name <laughs> the i just call her shireen um she's a brilliant scholar at northwestern but um she does a lot of work around co-design and so actually we kind of had Uh, An experience at my school where we had an English teacher, um, uh, me, students, parents, a parent who was like an environmentalist, um, all come together and design a unit that I taught in my chemistry class. So you have all these different content areas. I think like co-design could be a space where other content teachers could find kind of a similar model as what we do in um, YPS Pedagogy. Where you are centering other voices, right? So, like, we had two parents who met with students, um, you know, a researcher from Northwestern, teachers at their children's schools, and we were a team. So, like, this idea of a collective and collective learning seems to be a central theme. Whether it's like just science or a co-design model, where you're looking at, you know, have a history teacher, an art teacher, or an English teacher, or a science teacher, all working together. Um, that knowledge is building that it's historical right that we didn't all just like wake up one day and we're all here right but like you know Nina's i didn't know that about your parents Nina, and their history with all the gardens but like we all got to where we are because of our historical experiences and so like whatever your content is just kind of being curious about people's past their um their stories how they get to where they are Uh, Like in the unit that these students and parents designed for my class basically expanded what I do with polarity and symmetry, like molecular structure, where we were looking at like why, for example, um, oil doesn't, um, is oil and water don't mix, right? That certain things, why certain things aren't soluble in water and why the Chicago River caught fire. My students (laughs) expanded the unit to talk about the Potawatomi and the three fire nations, right? Like They are like, why are these people missing from from this discussion they should be in this discussion mm. and then another student brought in um um literature from upton sinclair who wrote who wrote the jungle right and the jungle documents Oof. the immigrant um experience in chicago um yeah. and what's that area called like the meat markets what's that called i can't think of what it's called
1: bubbly creek bubbly, bubbly, bubbly creek in, um, bubbly
3: creek but like the you know the whole industry the meat industry right like mm. upton, sinclair, uh-huh. upton sinclair writes about that so I have this brilliant English teacher, these students talking about literature. So like involving more voices, more um, different types of knowledge, the people who maybe aren't usual players in your content, I think is one way to kind of see this work, this type of work flesh out in other content areas.
2: And I, I think to because I know it's helpful for people to see like what we want to con- consider a tangible example, like written out step by step. On the one hand, um, I'll sh- share and I'll drop the link that Professor uh, Daniel Morales-Doyle and scholar Alejandro Frosto did write an article entitled Youth Participatory Science, a, Grass- a Grassroots Science Curriculum Framework. And in that framework, it kind of outlines what we went through or, or the process that we went through in terms of engaging in YPS, and it kind of provides a model for how to engage in a YPS project in a, in, in, in a science classroom, understanding that by no means is this work intended to be prescriptive, right? Meaning that, mm. like Tiffany said, even someone who's been doing a YPS project at X school, when you move to another school, it doesn't necessarily map on um, as easily because you need a, you need time mm. to, you know, commune with the people in that community understand what are the circumstances in that community what is the context for your students because your your school context may not be your Mm -hmm. students everyday lived life or uh context or experiences so that part is important when you're thinking about like this model in terms of like figuring out what the what the social justice science issue is and defining that. And then kind of applying a scientific lens. Um, what it might look like is, you know, applying a historic lens, lens, applying a multicultural lens, if you're thinking about it in language, right? And then planning some type of um, conducting an investigation. And then from there, there's an analysis and analysis of the data and assessing the learning and then reflect, disseminate and act, right? And even though that's kind of like a cyclic process, we understand that there is parts of the process that are not necessarily that smooth or predictive that a lot of science would like to portray is that science just happened in this very beautiful, um, predictable stream. And that's not the case. You know, sometimes you define the social justice science issue. And then like for us, when then applying the scientific lens, you know, went back and started to talk about the importance of history and things like that which Tiffany just br- brought up as well as Nina so um, I would say in terms of someone who's looking to engage in a wide y- YPS project in their classroom one understanding that it doesn't mean that you have to that this work is siloed into science is very much meant to be a partnership so you know if you are a multicultural or multi um, like um you know if you are a teacher of language like Spanish right are there entry points for those um, disciplines I would definitely say yes because for for me I'm not I wouldn't I've never considered myself a history teacher but for the to engage in this YPS. Project. It was very important for me to understand the history, the very specific history of the context in which my school was in, and the context of Chicago because I'm a transplant. I was born and raised in East St. Louis, Illinois. Like I said, East Boogie, um, and mm-hmm. I had to really grapple and understand what what was happening here so that I could be mm-hmm. able to engage in that grappling with my students. And so that means history was important, right? So then that's an avenue to partner with history teachers, right? So. These type of projects are very iterative in the sense that um, there's definitely opportunities to collaborate across disciplines within a school, as well as it's open enough for it not to just be uh, siloed in science classrooms. How can we build partnerships for students to really see what youth participatory science look like and how all of your content knowledge or your experiences that you are engaging in throughout the day, how would that what would that look like if students were able to apply that to one, you know, very specific context? I think that would be beautiful. But I would definitely refer people to the article "Youth Participatory Science: A um, A Grassroot Science Curriculum Framework" in terms of more like a guide of what this might look like and how to engage in a process versus it being a prescriptive method of do X, Y, and Z exactly like this. Understanding that your context is going to be really relevant for. You design, you you des, you deciding what the social justice science issue is in the first place and the partnerships that you have with the people in the community is also going to be important for deciding, you know, like then what do you do next, right?
1: Hey everybody, Nina here. I'm about to talk about a unit called Pills and Bills by Professor Danny Morales Doyle. It's a social justice unit, but I want to clarify that it's different from youth participatory science. We'll link information in the show notes if you want to learn more. Okay, back to the episode. Yeah, and I, I just wanted to quickly say that I, I feel like the other piece that's, that's 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 a part of this is creating a safe space for your students to want to share and feel comfortable to share about these critical issues that might be happening in their community. I think that that's really important because um, I just remember last year when we were doing the um, the drug unit and learning about the mass spec and then we started talking about drug use and drug testing and things of that nature and talking about the legalization of marijuana then you know all the dispensaries opened um, and no black people are, are dispensary owners not, not a lot versus you know all the the black people that are in jail for selling marijuana and just that real authentic conversation where students can feel comfortable telling you about their experiences about being stopped by police officers and, 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 and knowing that it's not going to leave that space and that it was a safe space to share their experiences with this or how they felt should drug tests be happening or not for jobs and just that personal conflict that they're going through and then vocalizing it in the class.
0: The, the way that you all are describing youth participatory science as someone who is very much an outsider um, to that curriculum uh, or that particular like this is this is new for me, like a new framework. And it just sounds like it's really about kind of deconstructing the ways that education has been. Um, built around like the different harms of education that are about uniformity or that are about assimilation and are about um, acculturation and not about uh, like humanizing students, not about the teacher as like the sole possessor of knowledge that, um, are about, uh, normalizing mistakes and like, uh, uh, like conflict being essential. Um, like all of these things, also the idea that it's not about like teaching discrete content. It's about the formation of a learner, the formation of, uh, um, someone who feels competent to forever, like inquire about the world around them. Um, and, It can't be can't be prescriptive like the way that you're like, yeah, there's not like a guide about like this is how you this is how you do this from A to B. A to Z, like here are the 10 steps that can't be prescriptive. <laughs> we all got to work on applying that in our own discipline areas um, and between discipline areas. The idea that someone would tell you that youth participatory science is not rigorous, like I'm tired just like listening to <laughs> what what it must take to build this curriculum um, because it's a lot. I, I This might be polemic, but I feel like as problematic and upsetting as that is, I also have compassion for teachers who are at some point like, you know what, so jaded, so tired, so exhausted, or for whatever reason, can't can't give their 1000% to the profession and we were talking about this before we started recording how like sometimes this profession requires 1000% of who we are um and if we got paid overtime for all the extra hours we put in we'd be so wealthy (laughs) um I mean that's not true but we would have way more money (laughs) um and that's just not the way it works um I I wonder if if I could uh like push uh, a little bit on, um, Tiffany and Dr. Chapel in particular about what it means to do this work. Cause I imagine it's tiring. I imagine by the time you get to June, you're like, nobody talked to me. Email is off forever. Um, and, uh, what it means, like, where's the joy in this? Like, where do you find, um, joy and healing in this? And, and I'm thinking about it particular to this moment that we're in, um, you know, in November of 2021, like what the what people have been through in the past couple of years and the ways that we've all um, uh, experienced different levels of trauma these past couple of years. Um, and then just like being a human in this world and the different ways that we are, um, where does the healing and joy come in? Um, so any one of you can start, because I think I would love to hear from all of you on, on that question.
2: I could jump in. When I think about the healing and joy, I think the healing and joy is here, right? Um, Being able to commune with others about the process, being able to share with people who are interested versus criticizing, because we get a lot of criticize, not a lot, but you'll hear like people say things um, without really understanding the level of commitment and work that it takes to engage in this type of teaching and learning. So being able to commune and gather with people who want to learn, um, I remember sitting at the table with, uh, professor Yomo Motegi and said, you know, oftentimes we try to force people, this is not his exact words, so I don't want to make it seem like it's his exact words, but uh, in summary, you saying sometimes we try to force people into wanting to teach and love, um black Black children and youth of color versus finding the people who already love them and want to be with them and focusing with, and, you know, and moving forward with them. And so when I hear his words, it makes me think, you know, um, instead of trying to force all teachers to teach this way and try to, you know, like, I'm not saying that they shouldn't, let me, let me clarify. I'm not saying that all teachers shouldn't teach this way, mm-hmm. they should. But instead of spending my days trying to force people to see the importance, I enjoy being able to, I find the joy in talking with people who want to, who are eager to, and might just need an entry Mm -hmm. point or someone to um, think through and think with. And what do you call that thing? Someone to, you know, be a sounding board or to bounce Mm -hmm. ideas off of and, you know, build with. So that is a point of joy for me. And also like, having students who come back the next year and it's like, Miss Chappell, what was the soil data like from last year? You know, what did they find <laughs> out? Or my students who didn't get to finish their collection because of, you know, COVID, right? They were like, so Miss Chappell, what are they going to do this year? And so they actually wrote a problem posing letter for my current students to explain what the YPS project has looked like over the four years, right? So for me, wow. um, that's joy and I'm gonna stop there so other people can talk, but I just wanted to also bring up one point when we're, it's important to have compassion for teachers about what they're going through and what they're experiencing. But I also think within having that compassion, it's important for us to acknowledge that all teachers are not looked at on the same spectrum um, when it comes to them not performing or doing to a certain thing. And so when I think to like race to the top and the way that schools are rated, you know, there are some schools. Teachers based on the school that you're at um, get to, you know, you're perceived as a great teacher just because of the school that you're at. And there are some teachers who are at a school who is rated a certain way, who is working 500 percent times harder. Right. But don't necessarily um, it's not considered not necessarily considered you know, a great teacher because of all those factors that are out of their control. So why I am a teacher and I do give compassion to teachers for all the reasons as to why they may not be performing or giving their 100 percent. I also think it's important to acknowledge that, um, you know, there are also contexts in which, you know, it's not viewed the same in terms of how teachers are perceived just based on, you know, their school or where they may be at. Or their race.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. I agree. Like finding a like-minded community is such as it's a blessing to me and such a joy for me. Uh, I can't tell you all how many times I have been told, "You don't look like a science teacher. You look like an art teacher or history." Te- like often in PDs, like where I'm sitting with the science teacher table, so handing me the history packet because twice because you don't look like you teach science, right? Because of the stereotype of what a scientist is. And I have felt that way my entire science, uh, like career, including like high school and college, right? I went to a big 10 university. Uh, I was in, you know, an Ivy track in high school. I was always the only black girl, the only black student. I remember nobody wanted to be my lab partner at Ohio State, just Mm. feeling, feeling invisible and very isolated. And so, like, inviting students in who have historically been on the sidelines, watching everybody else be the scientist, seeing them be, like, positioned as having something to contribute, that gives me so much joy. Going back to, like, the student Mm -hmm. of Brianna, the student named Brianna who helped relocate her grandfather in Flint, Michigan. I mean, hope, right? I think one of the challenges of this work is, As I was sharing earlier, we do a lot of problematizing. We look at the harms of science, not just the benefits of science, right? But the harms of science. Um, We look at, I mean, yeah, like I live down the street from where the Crawford plant was imploded. Like we're looking at all, one of my students last year said, I have so many problems already. I can't think about my air poisoning me. It starts to feel overwhelming to think about all the stuff that could be killing you, right? So when a student, when a group of students come together and say, you know what? Yes, the situation is grim. The situation is discouraging, but we're gonna win this battle, All right? But like um, my friend Rudy Lozano and I, I don't know, 15 years ago, maybe 12, 15 years ago, um, we did some organizing work with young people to repurpose a super fund. So we had a super fund in Little Village. Um, the neighbors around this area were getting these horrible rashes. The water was contaminated. Big battle that, um, you know, he and I had, well, I'm going to speak for myself. I don't know all what Rudy did, but I had a minor part in like organizing students for a summer, but like organizations like El Vejo, um and Enlace doing the long-term work of like winning these battles, winning these environmental battles, The um, you know, the fight um, in the Southeast side uh, with General Iron, people winning battles, students relocating their grandparents, you know, like that gives me hope to know that like, it's not all bad, it's not all doom and gloom, but that as we look at these problems, we're also the people with the solutions because nobody's coming to rescue us. We are going to rescue ourselves together, right? As a collective. And so that that always fires me up. And like, yes, it's been wonderful to teach black and brown students. For I love walking into a classroom and, and hearing students say, our science teacher is black, a black woman, right? But also now, why I'm working, with, I have a bunch of Asian students and white students, and they need the same kind of liberation, right? Like we all need the liberation. We all need mm, to have a more expanded like history, <laughs> expanded knowledge. Like we need to see one another shine, um, because that that frees us all up to see one another differently. So, you know, just seeing students grow and question and respond to New York Times articles with education and knowledge. It's just, it's wonderful, you know? So yes, it's exhausting, but there's so much beauty and hope in the world, the work too.
1: Thank you for sharing.
2: Nina. we've talked about it, this idea of like being a warm demander and what it means to be this type of teacher and how we're often positioned specific, specifically for me as a black woman, this whole notion of having an attitude. It's like, you know, it's like, I, we all have attitudes. Let's just put that out there. Every single person has attitudes because it's your belief system about, you know, different things. But, um, you know, just to hear my student who's removed from my class now talk about, um, what I hope my students take away from me. Like I always tell them, I don't really, my, my goal and. the as your teacher is not to make you like me. Like I'm okay if you walk away and you don't necessarily like me. But what I what I want is that to fill you with enough know-how, enough love and enough belief in your ability that when you walk into a room with people who are doubting your abil- ability or doubting whether or not you belong there, you can push through, push around or find avenues of support so that you can you know, withstand, and you can stay there in that space and you believe in yourself and you know that I believe in you if nobody else does. Right. That that's what I want you to walk away with. Um, You know, and if you love me in the end, that's great, too. But if you don't, but you walk away with that feeling, then that's even better.
1: Well, thank you so much um, for sharing. Um, And I would say that, you know, students, you know, last year, they kind of shared like even through remote learning, they were like, you know what? I thought this was going to be a typical science class, but we actually learned about history and politics and all that stuff. And so it's really good, you know, they want to talk about these things that's relevant to their everyday life. And so I think that that's really something that we all as teachers have to kind of think about. Like um how important is it to teach about electron configuration, you know, or can you use that time to teach deeper you know, skills, give students a chance to learn things in a a deeper way and how they can use that information to transform their communities. Uh, And so just that excitement. um, And even some of my students, like you said, Tiffany, challenging, like, who's making all these rules? That they're confident enough to say, why are we, why is oxidation reduction like this? You know, know, who decided this? You know, to know enough and feel confident enough to like kind of share like how they feel about science uh, and not think that I'm going to feel bad about them attacking science or critiquing science. Um, I think that that's something too that's like meaningful um, that kind of comes out of this kind of work when you give students that um, agency to be able to kind of interrogate science uh, in your teaching. And so um, I wanted to ask um, all of you, uh, how do you keep yourself going as a full person outside of the work? So what are some things that you do to kind of keep yourself going? Um, And we know that you share with us about your healing and joy and in this work. But how how do you really keep yourself going? It's
3: the people for me. You know, my community, my sons, my neighbors, my family. um, It grounds the work. You know, like this is not just academic exercise for me or career, career building or like um, you know, climbing a ladder. <laughs> I I don't think that would be enough to sustain me. Um, but it's love. It's like, it's a, it's a pedagogy and ethic of love, like loving pe- the people who I live amongst, loving my community. Um, so that grounds me and centers everything I do, even when I don't feel love. Love is not always convenient. It's not, you know, sometimes love feels like sacrifice and, um, not that it is, but it may feel that way, right? Because it's not, like, always convenient. Um, but I also have important rhythms in my life. Like, I take a full Sabbath, a full day. My whole family, we shut everything down once a week. Kids in the same pajamas if they want. Nobody has to make a bed. We don't cook. We just rest. We nap. We walk. Um, we I hike once a month. Um, I have bonfires in my backyard. Chop wood. Yeah, just like... <laughs> Whatever, just to, to take care of my physical good. body um, <laughs> is really important. You know, just um, sleep, rest, eating well.
1: Yeah, that's important. That's important.
2: Um, I think for me, when I think about like what I do, anybody who knows me knows that whether I'm happy, sad, stressed, <laughs> or relaxed, dancing is my form of expression and uh, more specifically like twerking. Twerking is so over-sexualized that I don't even understand. It's like some of the positions in ballet are way more, you know, sexually provocative, but yet (laughs) twerking just gets this over-sexualized framing that kind of makes people ashamed to talk about that they even engage in it. But, you know, for me turning on a music and just dancing in my, you know, my living room, you know, popping, twerking, bopping, (laughs) dropping it low, picking it up slow, making it roll around like my neck broke. Like that is what really is, you know, like the joy and the healing for me and doing that in community with, um, you know, like my friends, like sometimes I'll go downstairs to my goddaughter room and just be, you know, twerking and she be, oh my God, TT, you know? Um, And so that for me is very liberating. And it's very recentering, and it's very um, freeing. And it just reminds me to let go, right? Because even just saying it here now, right? Most people will be like, like in my dissertation, people are like, you twerked in your dissertation? I cannot believe it, right? (laughs) Because it's such a liberating form of expression for me that is not connected to all of these sexually provocative things that people like to try to connect it to. Um, And being able to do that, you know, like by myself, or in a room is liberating as well as cooking. I'm vegan and I love love cooking different meals and um you know just trying different recipes and being able to share that with other people. So, yeah. And also being productively being productive in my relaxing instead of saying what you doing nothing. No, I am productively resting my mind i'm productively laying on this couch and exercising my fingers (laughs) resting my eyes Mm. like all of that stuff is productive to move away from this whole idea of like the worker bee and that if you're not doing something active then you're doing nothing like no i'm working i'm resting my mind and my body and rejuvenating like that's productive
0: um it is the, all of, uh, I feel overwhelmed and uh, very inspired, and I I also um, it feels very fitting to end this conversation on a note of like what um, how you keep yourself going and how the things you all brought up are very humanizing. It feels very appropriate given how. Um, the curriculum that you implement and the work that you do as educators and as learners is about humanizing people right it's about building power in places where power has been denied or being able to analyze power through things that people have not been given access to um and, and doing that through a lens of anti-racism and um uh, you know class analysis and gender analysis like all of these things are deeply humanizing um and so to hear also how you as individuals humanize yourselves is uh it feels like a kind of beautiful way to um conclude this conversation um yeah uh and i don't know if you had anything else you wanted to ask or no
1: i just (laughs) wanted to thank them and i just wanted them to know both of them since i've met them um that they have definitely inspired me um, to be a different teacher for my students. And so I, I think that that's um, really rewarding to to meet, you know, two teachers um, that, you know, that can still push on me, you know, and, and help me to transform my teaching and just even just recently, I had like a simple conversation with Dr. Chapel Tuesday, and then I, I think I spent like a, a couple of hours changing my next unit just based on that conversation because I had saw myself falling back into the traditional teacher. And I was like, hold on, wait, wait, I got to do something different here. And so just having those simple dialogues, um, exchanges with uh, Mindy and Tiffany and um, the other teachers. Um, that just helps me to kind of push myself to keep, you know, being a transformative teacher and and not just be stuck in that, like you said, canonical science teaching and making sure kids have all this knowledge, but, you know, what are they gonna really do with it um, if we don't kind of give them that agency to kind of think about it? And so that's what I would say that I just want to thank them. And also want to thank you, Celeste too, for kind of pushing me to think differently too about my teaching. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks, y'all. It was really like beautiful to talk with all
3: of you. So, Les, thanks for tying that up for me. That was that was really insightful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah thank you both thank you for this opportunity yeah, yeah. to just... you all lay down the knowledge
0: tonight this was a seriously uh, <laughs> very very inspiring i'm really also uh, um we uh dr shireen Visuhi has already come up in other interviews so we'll we'll link their work again and if um dr chapel if you can send us at some point the article that you're talking about i would love to share that in the show notes absolutely thank you all so much this Not has really. been really beautiful thank you, thank you for the opportunity, opportunity. Thank you so much for listening to Pushing Praxis, Dialogues for Transforming Teaching. And thank you, Miles Komiski, music educator and artist extraordinaire for our theme music. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we encourage you to like and share this content with your community. Follow this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also get in touch with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or email us at pushingpraxis@gmail.com. at gmail.com check out our website at pushingpraxis.org.